Hi, I'm Nathan from Planet Earth. Hey, this is Edmund from Montana. I'm Kent from Denver. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like me. If you'd like to support the show, like I did, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. Take it away, Jesse. I'm Jesse Thorne. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, it's the Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Nathan Rabin is the head writer of the AV Club, the cultural criticism wing of The Onion. His new book, The Big Rewind, is the story of how he got to that esteemed position. He spent most of his childhood in poverty, and he followed a stint in the mental hospital with a few years in a group home for emotionally disturbed teenagers. During his darkest times, he writes, he clung to film, television, and music, and he frames his memoir with the stories and records that were his emotional touchstones. I spoke to Nathan Rabin in the offices of the AV Club in Chicago. Nathan Rabin, uh, welcome to the Sound of Young America. Uh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Nathan, you, you frame um, the stories in your book with uh, pop culture uh, 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 allusions and criticisms. Um, and one of the ones that I found the most interesting and illuminating was this little bit that you wrote about a one-episode Simpsons character uh, named Frank Grimes. Um, can you tell me uh, how, why that character was so important to you? Oh, sure. Well, um, it's from an episode called Homer's Enemy, uh, which is one of my favorite uh, Simpsons episodes of all time. And it's also one of the darkest Simpsons episodes of all time. And the idea is to kind of um, <laughs> showcase how sort of an outsider, more of a realistic figure, would kind of see Homer Simpson and his incredibly charmed life. So they introduce this character named Frank Grimes, who has you know, sort of this modern-day Job, where just every horrible thing in the world happens to him, and he just struggles and struggles and struggles and just barely gets by. So... Um, Mr. Burns sees, like, a new story about him and decides to hire him, and he's just filled. So he goes to work at the um, Springfield Power Plant, and uh, he is just filled with rage at Homer Simpson because Homer Simpson is dumb and never tries and just breezes by and yet has this incredibly charmed life. But I thought, you know, like so many Simpsons characters, he sort of becomes this pop culture archetype, uh, just this doomed man, this man who works and works and struggles and just never gets anywhere. And growing up, I felt like Frank Grimes. I felt like you cannot win. Um, like, uh, I, I used to joke growing up that uh, I believed in God because somebody very powerful had to be conspiring against me. So I think we should talk a little bit about your life chronologically. Um Things changed a lot for you when you were in early adolescence, but what was your family like, uh, family life like before that? Well, I like to uh, say that, you know, when I was about uh, 11 years old, my family made a tumble from the uh, neurotic middle class to the feral working poor. Um, <laughs> so basically what happened was my father um, got divorced uh, when I was about two years old. Um, he worked for the government. He was a bureaucrat. He hated his job. Um, 
And uh, so my parents divorced when I was uh, two years old. And then my mother, she uh, kidnapped me. Um, she didn't get custody of me. My father got custody, even though he had multiple sclerosis. And she kind of took me on this um, mad last dash uh, down to Texas and then to California. And then um, I guess my father uh, sent bounty hunters uh, to go and retrieve me uh, from my mother. And somehow I got back to my dad, and uh, he remarried, and then he worked for the government, uh, and he quit so that he could become a real estate agent. Uh, he was quite the um, believer in the American dream. And this concept, you know, that if you read the right books and you did the right thing, you could become fabulously, fabulously wealthy, even with no money down. And then he quit his job and he uh, sort of tumbled uh, into poverty. And we had like two years in the wilderness, basically, where my family moved down to Chicago and um, things just got worse and worse and worse. Uh, yeah. Well, hold on, because we, you have already, you've are, you're so far past bounty hunters, <laughs> yeah. and I'm still stuck at bounty hunters. Do you remember any of this drama between your parents? I, you know, it's weird. Uh, the first memory that I have is of my um, biological mother, as I like to lovingly call her, of her throwing something very hard uh, at my father, and my father ducking out of the way. So, kind of my initial um, <laughs> introduction to the world is just very, very bleak, and just this kind of just just vicious, you know, just just hostility um, that just boiled over, and it was a very nasty, very, very vicious uh, divorce. I um, didn't see my mother again until I was about 23 years old, and that was a very, very um, surreal experience. I had always assumed that both my parents were Jewish growing up, because I wasn't told otherwise. And <laughs> upon visiting my mother, I, I realized that not only was she not Jewish, but she was like a super goy. Uh, I had somehow like entered the, the valley of the super goys. And it just made me uh, so much more in touch with my own Judaism. Um, yeah, to see uh, an instance of, of just uh, how central it was sort of to, to who I was as a person. So it was very strange. And, and I, you know, I always wondered about her growing up. So I think I always had this idea that I had this very, you know, sort of strange creation story. Um, and I was always very curious. And I was kind of like a door. I didn't know whether it should be opened. But I kind of went barreling through it all the same. Remarkably enough, um, your mother not being a part of your life was not necessarily uh, your childhood central trauma. Um, <laughs> no, it had plenty of competition. You you alluded to the fact um, uh, that when you were young, uh, just at the end of pre-adolescence, just, just adolescent, your father had this fall from grace. W what did it look like from your perspective? Well, for me, it was really difficult because um, when I was young, you know, my father was the son. He was my hero. He was this guy that I worshipped. He was incredibly good-looking and kind and sweet. And, you know, I remember every Valentine's Day, he would uh, get me and my sister gifts. And he always get us uh, goldfish. And um, by February 15th, uh, the goldfish were always dead. Um, but he was also sort of this... Um, I wouldn't say like part-time dad, but he was always a little bit distant, you know, like he would just kind of show up and do the fun stuff. So I just, I love the hell out of him. And I remember like his second marriage was a little rocky and just kind of wishing that my parents would get divorced. And then when they did, it was the worst thing in the world. 
And my father has multiple sclerosis, got really, really bad, and he was just bitterly, bitterly depressed, and he couldn't find another job. And it was very much sort of this fall from grace. And I went from viewing this guy as representative of everything that was good and pure and wonderful in the world to just seeing him as uh, this broken figure and this person who was responsible for our poverty and our... um, you know, the fact that we had no security whatsoever. And I was just horrible to him uh, for two years, and I'm deeply, deeply ashamed. And at a certain point, he just couldn't take it anymore. And I was out of control, and I made a very um, half-assed suicide attempt. Uh, there's part in my book where I describe uh, drinking down a, uh, a box of caffeine pills with uh, grape Kool-Aid. And just kind of like hoping against hope that, you know, I would like have some sort of uh, caffeine induced heart attack. And then at like four in the morning, I started watching um, uh, Stewardess School. And I remember <laughs> thinking very vividly, like, I do not want to die of choking on my own vomit while watching Stewardess School. Like, I couldn't imagine like a worst uh, kind of experience. So about a month and a half later, my father just at wit's end uh, had me drag kicking and screaming into a mental hospital. And I think that was a pretty formative moment in our relationship, and that was definitely, um, you know, from one side to another, from just viewing my father as being this godlike figure to just seeing him as just uh, faintly monstrous. And I think it took me a long time to kind of get over that, to see him as something other than the guy who had me drag kicking and screaming into the mental hospital. And the thing that made it worse, too, is that he uh, didn't really know anything about the mental hospital. Like, I remember he was asking the um, psychiatrist uh, that night, like, oh, what kind of um, program do you have here at the mental hospital? Like, is it Freudian in nature? Is it more Jungian? And I remember just kind of looking at him and thinking, like, you bastard. Like, this isn't like some sort of abstract intellectual problem. You know, you're not back at the University of Chicago and you're contemplating, like, what is the best way to treat a troubled young man? Like, this is your son, you know, and you're going to have him, like, thrown into this place that you know nothing about. And just from an intellectual perspective and, and definitely in terms of, like, how the uh, mental hospital actually was, the whole idea that it would be Freudian or Jungian <laughs> was completely ridiculous. Um, and yeah, it was more, more behaviorist in orientation. Um, so yeah, that was very, very difficult. And I feel like in a lot of ways, this book is about my relationship with my father. And, uh, he's sort of the hero of this book, um, oddly enough. And it's kind of about the evolution of our relationship from, you know, worshiping my dad to just despising him to uh, having this incredibly strong bond that means a lot more because we've gone through hell together and we've kind of come out on the other side. It's The Sound of Young America. My guest is Nathan Rabin, the head writer for the Onions AV Club. He's also the author of The Big Rewind, a memoir brought to you by Pop Culture. Part of the story focuses on his time in a mental hospital at the age of 14. When your father committed you... um, what was it like for you and you know an adolescent what what did you think it was going to be like i mean how did it how did it compare to your expectations well the irony is that i would sometimes fantasize about like what an amazing experience i would have in a mental hospital and as a kid i got all of my ideas from television and film and in television and films, there are basically two kinds of mental hospitals. There's like, you know, the very nice, um, idyllic uh, people painting and doing Tai Chi and, you know, listening to classical music uh, on, you know, immaculately tended grounds. 
And then there's like the snake pit, one flew over the cuckoo's nest thing, where it's just a bunch of lunatics like lurching around in circles. And at the time that I was committed, I literally watched television for about 12 to 16 hours every day. Like, I did not want to live in the outside world. I wanted to live in, you know, the world of MTV and the world of Mr. Ed and like all these sort of escapist fantasies. So I remember thinking, um, at least if I go to like one of these horrible mental hospitals, like A, I'll get like some really cool drugs. Um, and B, I'll get to watch television all the time because that's what people do in mental hospitals. They just spend all their time watching television. And like the first day, first full day that I was there, I discovered that there was no television in the mental hospital. And this blew my mind. Like this completely, like that was outside of my frame of reference. And I think that was harder than being dragged kicking and screaming into the mental hospital. Um, this whole idea that I'd like have to spend an indefinite amount of time not watching television. And I think the idea was that, you know, anything that was considered a distraction was forbidden. And I didn't write about this in the book, but um, it seemed very, very telling that they would wheel a television and a VCR into the uh, hospital one day out of the month. And that one day they would show a movie. And the movie that they showed while I was there was The Wild One. And I think <laughs> I think the message of that was if you try and rebel and you have attitude, even if you're like as cool as Marlon Brando and if you look that good in a leather jacket and uh, tight jeans, like if you try and rebel against the system, you will be crushed. And that was basically the overall message of the mental hospital was you need to conform to the sort of very narrow image of mental health. And you need to be almost this grotesque caricature of, like, an obedient child. And only by doing that will you prove yourself worthy of living on the outside. And that was just incredibly, incredibly dispiriting. In my first uh, two weeks there, I just rebelled, and I rebelled. And, like, it was very empowering. And one of my first days there, one of the people, uh, one of my fellow mental patients, said to me, you know, I've been in a lot of mental hospitals. Which, again, is I think everybody should preface everything with that statement. You'll be taking a lot more ease, uh, seriously. If you're like, I've been in a lot of loony bins. And you are the angriest person that I've met in any of these uh, mental hospitals. And I remember feeling really, really flattered by that. I'm like, wow. And I'm like, of course I'm angry. I'm in a mental hospital. Like, what kind of a lunatic would I be if I was like, well, this is an interesting change of pace. And um, almost immediately after leaving the mental hospital, uh, which, of course, uh, didn't happen because I got better. It happened because my dad's insurance ran out. Uh, my dad fell down, and he punctured his lung, and he wasn't able to take care of me anymore. So, like, five months after that, I lived with uh, my aunt and my uncle. I ended up living in a foster family and then a group home for emotionally disturbed adolescents. So the irony was that not only was the mental hospital, uh, you know, a cure that was worse than the disease, but it was a cure for something that would not exist anymore. Like, I never lived with my dad after that. So I thought that was kind of painfully, painfully ironic that I just went through this month of hell. Um, for no real reason whatsoever. Although, you know, I thought, hey, maybe I'll get a book deal out of it. So <laughs> I was I was very naive. Every trauma that I had growing up, I just start seeing dollar signs. Um, it also probably made it more difficult for you to come up with uh, moderately to extremely implausible suicide attempts. 
Yeah, <laughs> that it did. But but the thing is, I I made a uh, I made a vow with God, um, who's my homie, and I said to him, if I survive this night of vomiting profusely uh, and watching uh, stewardess school. I also shaved half of my head for some reason, uh, which was no crazier or less crazy than anything else I did at that point in my life. I said to God, if I survive this, I will never attempt suicide again. Um, and I certainly won't choose a, a half-assed way, like swallowing caffeine pills. And I've, I've held true to that. It's the sound of young America. My guest is the head writer for the Onions AV Club, Nathan Rabin. Production of the Sound of Young America is underwritten in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. Hello, my name is Graham Clark. And my name is Dave Shumka. And we host a podcast together called Stop Podcasting Yourself. We are two comedians in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, but we're not jerks about it. Yeah, we're not going to get all weird on you because of it. Yeah, we're not trying to sell you nothing. We're not going to try and teach you anything. We're certainly not going to try to teach you no grammar. Yeah, but we might teach you how to love again. <laughs> again? Yeah. And again. After your accident. Uh, so we're very charming, and you should listen to our podcast. It's available on iTunes by searching Stop Podcasting Yourself. Or you can find us at StopPodcastingYourself.com. It's the Sound of Young America. My guest is the head writer for the Onions AV Club, Nathan Rabin. His book is called The Big Rewind, a memoir brought to you by pop culture. You write uh, about your teenage years spent in, in the group home, and, and it reminded me of something I've always wondered about. Uh, that situation, you know, I have a good college roommate who uh, works in a group home like this and, you know, has told me about it. And uh, one of the things that's always struck me is um, the fact that if you're running a, a home for emotionally disturbed adolescents, the nature of the emotional disturbance is completely different in every one of these young people. And so you're writing about living in a world where um, every all your peers are emotionally disturbed, but in completely different ways. Just couldn't be more different and diverse. And you're very. It seems like you learn to be tolerant in a very real way about these all these people who do these these kids who do the have these bizarre behaviors right well i mean we're, we were all freaks <laughs> you know nobody ever uh landed at uh my group home you know because their family was too stable or too <laughs> secure and again it was just um i think you know sort of one of the tragedies of, of my adolescence was i just lived inside myself and i um sort of escaped into films and i escaped into television and I didn't really make an effort to, like, engage with the people around me. And I think, had I, like, things would have been easier. And when I was living with the group, I think maybe I started to uh, come out of that a little. Um, because by necessity, you're spending all your time around these people who are so, so different. And uh, one of my first roommates, when I moved in there, was could not have been more different than me. He was this guy with, like, this, you know, child molester, pubic hair mustache. And... Uh, you know, his mother uh, looked just like him, only, you know, with a slightly less pronounced mustache. <laughs> and his father had been um, shot in the face. He was a security guard, and he was shot in the face and killed. And he would talk sometimes about, like, getting vengeance on the people responsible for that. And he came from, like, this little hick town in, in uh, Illinois and just 
<laughs> it was kind of adorable, you know, and it was also, I mean, it was kind of touching because it was obviously just really, really sad deep down. We just kind of buried it. Um, so I think it was just fascinating kind of getting to know these people who were so different. And it was almost sort of like being in the military where you don't really have any control over it. Um, but you meet all these incredibly bizarre, incredibly interesting people. And you sort of uh, have this bond sort of forged in the sort of shared struggle. And, um, yeah, I mean, I just I think about these guys. And I, I wonder sometimes, like, what they're up to uh, these days. And in a weird sort of way, when you're writing a book like this, um, people become characters. And they become characters in the big rewind. And you almost have to, like, check yourself and say, these are human beings. Like, they, their story did not end after I saw them for the last time. They're not just, like, people in your book. Um, but at the same time, uh, I, I empathized and I identified a lot with people around me. Um, there was kind of an interesting sort of, uh, class divide in the group home where there were two kinds of people there. There were private placements, which meant that like your social worker placed you there. And those kids tend to be Jewish and, and very smart and very dark. I just have this very, um, pessimistic and, um, you know, uh, cynical um, and angry take on the world. And I feel like, um, you know, one of the people that I live in a group home with, I believe his name is Noah in the book, like, I think he's probably as funny and as smart um, as anybody I've ever met. And that includes all the people that I worked with at The Onion. Um, but he had no outlet for it. It just sort of manifested itself in these sort of incredibly Dadaistic um, displays of rebellion, where he actually he was kind of like... Uh, Marlon Brando and, and the wild one. Ooh, everything loops back. Uh, where, you know, that whole, if you were to ask him, you know, what are you rebelling against? He would have said, you know, what have you got? And the last memory that I have of him, although he, he sought me out on Facebook, uh, appropriately enough, was he, um, he found my dad really adorable and he had like a, a really adorable grandmother and we kind of bonded over that. Um, but at one point he said to me, um, you know, Nathan, I'm going to throw a gang party in your dad's apartment. And I remember thinking, like, oh, that's so adorable. Like, what an insane, like, nonsensical idea, but I'm sure you're not going to be able to do it. And then I um, came home one day uh, after I'd gone away to college, and uh, I was with my girlfriend. We'd just seen uh, Ani DeFranco concert. And uh, <laughs> sure enough, I returned to my dad's apartment, and uh, there was a gang party. And he was there, and he was, like, you know, talking about, like, oh, my God, like, things are getting out of control. And, like, my dad had let them in because he's, you know, such a sweet, such a, such a consummate mensch. And he's like, yeah, your friend showed up, and he, he brought some buddies, and they're all just hanging out. And I'm like, Dad, like, <laughs> they're just throwing a gang party in your apartment. Like, don't you find that a little bit odd? And we just sort of, like, milled about, and it ended badly. You never would imagine that being the case, but... um yeah, one of my other friends from the group home, like, ended up getting hit in the head with a bottle. And uh, I spent part of that evening, like, washing blood um, off of the walls. So, again, these are all uh, memorable life experiences that I would not have had uh, if I hadn't lived in the group home. And, again, maybe that, you know, broadened my frame of reference and forced me to uh, live outside my mind a little bit, even if, you know, I also kind of retreated into myself. Uh, even more um, and in a weird sort of way like I'm kind of grateful that I went through all of these things because they made me the person that I am today when did you feel like you when and how did you feel like you got control over yourself and your life again well I think a lot of it I, I, in a weird sort of way I um, my sister went to University of Wisconsin uh, at Madison 
and uh, she's a year and a half older than me. So I visited her when I was um, when she was a freshman, and I was 15. And I remember going to Madison, and just being blown away and thinking like, oh my god, like this is like some sort of crazy hippie utopia. And I'm a freak and a weirdo in Chicago, but I'm, you know, going to be accepted and loved and tolerated and embraced in this, like, weird uh, little world onto itself. And I remember seeing The Onion there and thinking, like, oh, my God, who are these people and why aren't they rich? And I just had, like, this weird (laughs) idea that, you know, I had some kind of, you know, connection to it. Um, So I think moving to Madison is kind of when my life really began and when I could sort of um, get rid of some of the shame and the self-hatred that came with, you know, having your mother abandon you, that came with um, being put into a mental hospital, that came with being kicked out of a foster family, that came with living in a group home for emotionally disturbed adolescents, where I could stop being this freak and embrace all the weirdness. Well, Nathan Raymond, thank you so much for uh, taking this time to be on the Sandy Young America. Oh, well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Nathan Rabin is the head writer of The Onion's AV Club. His new book is The Big Rewind, a memoir brought to you by pop culture. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our editor is Nick White, our intern, Mariel Reyes. Our music is provided by Dan Wally. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org, where you can also find our free podcast, among other things. If you have thoughts about the show, you can always email me directly. My personal email address, yes, it's really my real email address, is jesse, J-E-S-S-E, at MaximumFun.org. We'll see you next time, right here on The Sound of Young America.